Rain Maida is late. I show up at the 930 Club in downtown D.C. I'm on time for the interview as always. By on time, I mean a few minutes after I promised I'd arrive. So I fit into that perfect window of responsible journalist and really busy cool journalist. And Rain Maida is late because he took a bicycle down to the Supreme Court just to look at it, he said, to take it all in. This is the week of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and Rain, like most artists I've interviewed on the podcast, can't help but want to talk about what's going on in America and his feelings about the guy who runs it. And the discussion never seems phony or manufactured, as if any of these musicians I talk to are posturing over their politics. Dude went down to the Supreme Court on a bike just to look at it. For real. I suppose you could spend worse afternoons between soundcheck and a podcast interview with a bald guy about your 25-year career in the music industry. You know, this is the new format. I'm setting up in this little half-dressing room, and, and he's late, so I get to put my little engineering hat on. Where do I place the recorder? Where is he going to sit? Where am I going to sit? Let's go over the questions again. How's my battery life? Is my shirt tucked in? Does this shirt make me look fat? How's the voice? May me my mo moo. May me my mo moo. <laughs> and everyone's been late. This is not an exclusive thing. Wait till you hear about the next episode. They're musicians, for God's sake. Of course they're going to be late. It's the law. But it's good that he's late. On-site interviews are still new for me. I'm still trying it on. It was much easier in a radio studio, the freak's natural habitat. I could be territorial there. I could show them where the bathroom was. I could get them coffee. I could ease into this shit. And now it's boom. Hey, nice to meet you. Check, check, check. Let's go. And when Rain Maida finally showed up, dressed casually in a black baseball cap and black sweats, the perfect biking outfit. <laughs> he was a great interview. Rain is the lead singer in Our Lady Peace, a Canadian alternative rock band that I grew up loving as they seemingly got lost in the shadows of bigger bands like Pearl Jam and Nickelback and Live here in the U.S. Meanwhile, back home in Canada, they were killing it the whole time. In the late 90s, they really broke through. They had a couple platinum-selling albums, a few rockin' radio hitch. And like a lot of bands who had success in that era, they're still doing it. The industry that they may once have thrived in has collapsed, or at least the commercial model for it has, and so the fact that Rain Maida and Our Lady Peace are still doing it is testimony to their dedication to the craft. And what I like most about Rain Maida, dude is handsome, he's got platinum albums, he's aging well, and there was no pretension there. In fact, there was a lot of self-deprecation which warmed my insecure little indie musician heart. Rain and I talk about his quarter century experience in Our Lady Peace, changing his name, who knows less about the DC club scene, and his rock and roll love story. And we stay away from the politics. That's not what this podcast is about. Go listen to Embedded if you want to hear that shit. Kicking it off with Head Down, the first track on Our Lady Peace's most recent album, Somethingness, then my conversation with Rain Maida, right here on Independent Minded. It's Ryan. Out of my head 
DC is this is like Shaw oh my god you're you, asking me do you know <laughs> I have no well, you've idea. probably been here more than I have have you played here before? I, we have played here I love this this is a pretty incredible venue we were probably haven't been here for five years this area has like gentrified beyond belief you used to like run from the dressing room to the bus and uh now <laughs> now we have went that breakfast this morning there's like a Warby Parker across the street yeah you know I, I was saying before we cracked the mics that the podcast has been an opportunity for me to kind of explore the city. I just moved down here a couple of months ago, yep. but I live in a suburban part of Maryland. Okay. And when I come down to Capitol Hill, it's an opportunity for me to walk to different parts of downtown DC to various venues and quite a potpourri. I, you know, I've been to City Winery in Brentwood. How is City Winery? I, I hear those are pretty cool. It's very classy there. No classy? offense to the walk-in closet here at 930 Club, but it's very classy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think it kind of plays to more of, of a, I don't want to say an adult audience, but 
classy in the sense that like you couldn't go full bore with the amps and right. and the rock and roll there. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. if you wanted to play like an acoustic version, right. or maybe you're like like do your solo material live. That's the sort of venue. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you keep hearing there. about them, and I think it's it's an interesting concept. I mean, I always thought this place, Nine Thirty Club, was like a perfect blueprint for what you know a club should be across the country and no one really kind of took that but i interviewed an artist who admitted that now that they're kind of older and they're playing to an audience that kind of grew up with them that's kind of older yeah the city winery sort of set up is like a blessing because sure there are people who want to go to a show on a tuesday night and but be home by 10 30 and don't want to stand and yeah yeah, yeah the place yeah, doesn't yeah. smell like beer yep but there is something about the grittiness of the clubs in this area, I would imagine. Oh, that, my God. That we bring played, it back, I would yeah, We played TLA last night. I loved it. In Philly. It was amazing. We've been talking this whole time. I haven't even introduced Right, you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Who is this guy? I'm with Rain Maida from Our Lady Peace, a band uh, I kind of grew up with. I remember being in college when uh, Navid came out. And it's good to see uh, almost 25 years later, here you are. You're still doing it. Yeah. Did I, you kind of had to look like, has it really been 25 years? I or? mean, you know, I, I'm never one, one to like look back. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It goes quick, like anything. You know, it's like you spend the first half of your career just trying to get your head wrapped around like the music business and everything that's happening and any success you have and all the touring and stuff. And that goes by really quickly. And then the second half, you know, the last 10 years have been like, I think more, you approach stuff with gratitude, like being here tonight and and the shows that, that we're doing. And anytime we're in the studio and writing, it's like, you know, this is a pretty cool way to make a living. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to start the podcast with a moment. I wanted to bring you back to a moment in my life. Uh, 2001, it was probably early spring 2001. I was in a band called The Substance and we were recording at a studio right outside of Boston. And I was the keyboard player, sang a little bit in that band. And as you know, in the recording studio, there's a lot of downtime. If you're not the principal songwriter, yeah, when's yeah, your yeah. time to track, you do your thing and then everybody else yeah. kind of scatters. And I had a moment to kind of leave the studio and kind of get my head together. And I took my guitar player's SUV and I drove to a friend's house in Boston and spent a good part of the afternoon there. And on the way back, I still have this vivid memory of listening to Spiritual Machines. Oh, cool. I don't know. This is hippie shit, but I just looked out to the dashboard and the sky like looked good. And I just like had like a really good feeling about my life at that moment. And, and your music provided the soundtrack that's very to cool. a snapshot of my intricate yeah. <laughs> life. Well, in that's way. a good record to pick because that's I mean, that record was all about the future anyway. I wanted to mention, it's still one of my favorite OLP albums. It's it's very experimental. It's kind of like a bigger thinking album. And it was a real departure from the commercial sound that you were kind of, I mean, at the time, totally, absolutely. your sound yeah. would be considered commercial. You I, agree think, with that, I, right? I think that was done on purpose, you know? It wasn't really an F you to the label. I just think we've never been one of those bands once we've had, whether it's gone bad or had huge success and platinum records, like to repeat it. It, didn't, it just never worked for us to try to like rewrite a hit song or something, you know? Right. We always went the opposite way. I think the core sound of the band, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, stems from you being the founding members. Yeah, exists. exactly. I think it's you know we all like songs, so it it starts with a song. It's just how far you take it, left or right. When I do the research for these podcast interviews, I go back and listen to as much of the the old records and even the newer records as I can, just to kind of get in the spirit. Sure, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm a Spotify user, and it comes up a lot in these conversations. Obviously, you were signed in the old world model of. A&R guys yep. and major labels. And now here we are where music is at the touch of a button. Recorded music has been devalued. It's a theme that comes up often. And bands from the 90s who established a career in that old model 
are st still existing in the newer model because they have this catalog. Years of fans just built yeah. up from touring. Yeah. But what's your opinion on that as far as being a new artist, like somebody who's just picking up a guitar for the first time? Like, how do they deal with the challenges of just accepting the fact that, you know, music is not as commercially I, well, viable as it First of all, I, I wouldn't say music is devalued. I'd say definitely you're not going to monetize a recorded piece of music the way you once could. But I mean, the reality of it, if people knew the kind of intricacies of having a record deal, you know, all the bands that came up when we were you're making videos if you're still starting out as a baby band you're getting to support so you're building up this ledger of like you know a lot of money you got to pay back yeah so even though with clumsy or gravity you know the toast to records did really well platinum records it's like we weren't making you know incredible amounts of money from cd sales at that point anyway because sure. we're you know we're spending three hundred thousand dollars on a video times three or four it's like the record company's essentially a bank but what I do think is interesting is just more in the digital age of social media. And I find that young artists, you can't just be an artist anymore. You have to be an entrepreneur. You know, you have to mm -hmm. like wear three hats. You almost have to have your merch designs before you have a good song, which is unfortunate. And I think then after that, it's like you have to figure out, you know, how to make people want to listen to your stuff. And that just takes a lot of time and energy and Facebook and Snap and Instagram and all that stuff, which at the end of the day, it takes away from just learning your craft. Yes. So I think yes. that's, that's, the, that's the, yeah, that's <laughs> the one thing where I see, you know, with the future, like I think technology is amazing, but I do see it. It's not even a distraction. It's like a necessity. You have to do all that other stuff. This whole thing of being an artist has come full circle for us. Cause when you start out and you're like a 17 year, 18 year old kid in your basement or your garage, which OLP especially essentially was, it's like, you have this real F you attitude and you don't know anything about the music business, about a record company, tour buses, any of that shit. So you're just making music that moves you, you know, when you're jamming it out in your rehearsal space. And that's what it was all about in the beginning. That's how Naveed was made. And then you go through this journey. And I think for us, we've come back to the point where we really have that FU attitude again. And at the end of the day, that that's what it's come back to for us. It's like when we're sitting in our studio, does it give us that feeling again? And something this for the first time in a long time, really like, I mean, we tapped into something really special. And I think this record's like one of our, and even our fans are, are kind of, you know, saying it's like one of our best records ever. So it's, I think it's like a gift and we just want to try to hold on to that and, and take it into the next new recording as well. You know, I do my due diligence by doing the research online. Wikipedia is always a good, if not reliable help. Hmm. So I want to play a little game called The Internet Says, and let me know uh, if these are true facts. Two mics. You changed your name to Rain to avoid confusion with your guitarist, Mike Turner, in the band. No, you know, it, it's really one of these things. It's really interesting because I went to um, a prep school, like a private school in high school. I got kicked out. Hopefully at that point when you're, you know, 18, 19, you're trying to figure out like, what's your moral compass, you know? Of course. And so for me, um, the school I went to wasn't necessarily very supportive of the arts. I, I was trying, you know, I, was, I started a band in high school. They didn't like it. They're like, cut your hair. I said, no. Headmaster was like, well, this isn't working for you. I think you're a smart guy, but you, you need to go do your thing. So I did. So I left that school, but it was really about this metamorphosis of like really accepting who I was, wanting to like really embrace the creativity, which I felt like even through elementary school and the high school was trying to be like sucked out of me, you know, like no one was really supporting it. So it was all about like changing everything and including that. It was like, it, it was an acceptance thing for me, which was pretty profound to be honest back then. 
Is there a short answer to why you chose the name Rain? Not really. You know, it's like all these crazy circumstances that happening. My parents getting divorced, being alone uh, at the school, then being, you know, kicked out. It, it, was a, it was a pretty dark moment for me, to be honest. The easy question is, I've never written a song when I'm happy. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think a lot. It's harder to write a song when you're happy, it, isn't it? It really is. Like you need to pull from somewhere that is powerful and profound, and you're going to be able to tap into, you know, night after night. Who knows? I didn't ever conceive of it being 25 years, but I'm glad that's what drives me because it's, you know I can still go on stage for the most part and. I still believe all those songs from the early days. Right on. All right. So the internet's lying about that. Uh, Bob Rock suggests you change your vocal style. The internet has described, I believe, a little unfairly your early vocal style as nasally. Do you read reviews? Do you care about that I stuff? don't even know. I, did, I read a few early on. I was like, I can't take it. That's my, enough? My ego is too fragile. <laughs> Do you see a difference in your vocal style? You know, it's funny. Those two records that we made with Bob had a very distinct sound. And Bob is, you know, kind of meat and potatoes, rock and roll. Obviously, oh, yeah. he just come off doing the Black Album with Metallica. And so what his thing was, was just stripping our sound down. So it it, it was really more of a frequency thing. And, and it just so happened, you know, it's like one of those things where the music had this, like I said, a more stripped down, straight up kind of rock sound. And, you know, vocally, it just it allowed me to sing like that. So there was nothing, um, nothing contrived about it or Bob and I never had a conversation. Right That's on. funny. I never heard that one. All right. So the Internet's 0 for 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I when hope- you said Wikipedia, man, I was like, come on. <laughs> well, I hope this one. Well, where else am I supposed to go? Oh, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm here. I'm yeah, here to yeah, clear everything exactly. up. Let's clear it up. Let's get this stuff changed. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope this one is true. Let's talk about your rock and roll love story. Did you meet your wife at a Pearl Jam concert? That's true. All right. Yeah. All right. So the true. one that's supposed to be true is true. Yeah, that one's true. I want to hear more about this story. I've had a few husband and wife duos on the podcast, including... A really cool band out of upstate New York called The Parlor. Cool. Greg Adonito from The Bouncing Souls uh, does a children's music band with his wife, Shanti. I've had them up a couple of times. Nice. Uh, I'm a musician and I've always been a creative person and I've always admired the fact that you can collaborate with the most important person in your life. They say bands are like marriages. They are, uh, yeah. So you obviously have a lot of experience on both sides of the coin. Well, I mean, it is simple. We met at a Pearl Jam. We were both signed to Sony, Columbia Records, and um, Pearl Jam was on Sony. We were both in Toronto at the time. She was doing a video, and I think we were recording Clumsy, and we are both given you know tickets to a Pearl Jam concert. Right, come see the show. Yeah, and it's in the Sony kind of little, little section box or whatever. And you know, basically, she turned around and said hello, and that was kind of it. That was it. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Like, honest to God, that was it. We didn't, we kind of, I remember listening to the first song and then we kind of talked and moved away from the concert. And, you know, I think we went and shot pool afterwards and hung out and had some drinks. And I walked her back to her hotel. We separated for a long time because she was busy starting her career. We were, finished our record and went on the road, but kept in touch by phone. And that was, yeah, it was a really short story. And now like collaborating is really interesting when you say that because like it took I don't know, 20 years to make a record together. Oh, you've actually made a record together. So we have a project called Moon V Sun, like Moon vs. Sun. We have a, an album finished. We shot a documentary on this little French island we went, where we went to write the record. And we have a podcast as well that we started. It's all about couples that collaborate and how you do the work and how you navigate that. And it's really oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow, well, I got some good guests for you. Please. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 gonna we're up. I think we're we're doing Amy Mann and Michael Penn coming up. Oh, I opened for Amy Mann. Really? Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah we just talked to this really neat couple, uh, the guy that did this thing called Junk Raft, which is all he, he 
basically built this raft out of you know plastic bottles like this and tried to sail from California to Hawaii. But he's the one responsible for like cleaning up the five gyres. Those are the five places in the on Earth and the oceans where all the plastics collect. Got rid of microbeads. Him and his wife do this together. I mean, I just like you mentioned before. I love the idea of couples that can find a way to collaborate, and so that's kind of our thing coming up. And finding out about collaborating with your wife, uh, you know, I dug deeper and. You produce other bands. You have a solo career. You are uh, intimately involved in uh, the production of Avril Lavigne's second album, Under My Skin. Yeah. You and your wife co-wrote a large chunk of that album. The album goes triple platinum. Do you think at that point, I'm just going to find a dozen Avril Lavigne's? Like, what's the difference between writing and recording for stuff that's your own? You've also worked with a ton of other artists that I'll get into in a second. Yeah, but. I mean, I, the Avril thing was unique. My wife was writing with her and Avril was just kind of like, she just had that huge first album. And was kind of looking for, I guess, some safety. Like she was, you know, everyone was pulling at her, obviously. And we were living up in Malibu, like up in a canyon. And Avril came over and basically we were recording a song there. And she just ended up living with us for like four months. And I think it was, I just think it was really good for her in the sense of like just being away from it all and having some seclusion and privacy where we lived up there. And she was just able to be creative, you know, rather than popping around to, you know, every everyone was just so hands-on with her because they wanted her to repeat that first success, you know, sure. as you can imagine. So it was, I think it was just a good time and place for her. And she probably found safe haven with like-minded individuals, I would assume. Yeah, she did. I think she, you know, my wife became a bit of a mentor to her and, and she just, she was just much more chill. And like, I just think no matter what was going on, she just felt like, you know, I'm away from all the noise. Well, in addition, you've had writing collabs with Carrie Underwood, Kelly Clarkson, the Veronicas. Yep. How do you prioritize these projects? I'm sure... You got a lot of stuff thrown at you. You know no? what? It was just back then, I think, with Avril and all the stuff that was going on, we got... You were hot in that area? Yeah, you know, people just were were like, you know, Carrie was like a fan of Our Lady Peace. And so when she was looking for writers for that record, she wanted to work with us. And we just kind of did it like that. I, I did it for a minute. My wife still does it. She wrote some amazing stuff for like Drake and Kendrick Lamar and tons of artists. I, I kind of moved away from it. It really isn't... Um, it's not my passion. That yeah. makes sense. Well, that's what I was kind of getting at. I mean, yeah. you obviously have a lot of experience. It in was that fun area. for a minute. I love producing. I love the engineering aspect of it. Like, I love the details. It was good for a minute, but I moved away. What is your passion? Creativity. And I, and I think that's what happens in those situations, especially with those types of artists, you're dealing with a very narrow lane in terms of what those songs can sound like and right. what you can do with them. You don't and stray it, from the formula. Too yeah, much. it is a formula. And it kind of it started to just kind of drag me down to be honest. And so, um, I kind of, have, I'm, I'm in tech, which I find really interesting in terms of the fluidity of the tech space and developing different ideas and apps and stuff. And I, and I just find huge parallels with music and, and technology, you know? So that's kind of where I've gone to. I want to touch a little bit on your humanitarianism and your philanthropy. You're involved in a lot of different projects like War Child, uh, Harmony House. Like what inspires your advocacy? I grew up in Canada. There's a social consciousness that kind of yeah, I've noticed maybe, that. Yeah, maybe it's in the water <laughs> or something, but it really stems from like some of the early concerts I went to. I remember going to like at a Peter Gabriel show at Maple Leaf Gardens nice. in Toronto and you're walking out and he he gave a speech about amnesty and you're walking out and then amnesty is signing people up and Greenpeace are giving stickers out. And it's just like, there's a feeling, you know, and like a community that you want to be a part of if you feel that. And I really did. And so I joined amnesty and, and that translated into an awareness of, of globalism and being, you know, doing something bigger than yourself. And then as OLP started, you know, where you're, you just, you get, get an opportunity. It's a, it's a gift, right? To meet different people and sure. 
schedules. I traveled and I went to Iraq and, and Sudan and Darfur with War Child and you get to see all the good work people are doing. And I'm lucky. I mean, it's not what I do every day. I get up and I grab a guitar. These people get up and they're begging for money to keep programs going in Afghanistan and stuff. So I, I'm like a Monday morning quarterback on that stuff. But, you know, no different than, than the Gabriels and Springsteens and Willie Nelson and those people. It's just a part of what we are. Absolutely. There's no obligation for creative types to do what you do. Exactly. There isn't. There isn't. I just happened to it and it struck me and it hit a chord. And there well, we that's go. what makes it all the more noble. So congratulations on all that. I always go back in time. I know you don't like to look back, but this is more of a, of an influences and inspiration sort of question. You know, what got it started for you? Was there a band? Was there an artist that you saw on TV? Was there a concert you went to, you know, when you were a young age before you ever picked up a guitar or sang into a microphone that made you say, I want to be in a band. I want to be a rock star. I want to tour the world, et cetera. Yeah, it was really, is these two different experiences, right? So the first concert I ever saw was Van Halen, 1984. Oh, God bless you. Yeah, and I, and it was huge, <laughs> and I love that record, and yeah, I, I love the record. concert, and David Lee Roth had his swords out, and, you know, Eddie was swinging across the stage, and it's like, that was an amazing experience. It was very entertaining. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a show. It's like yeah. and then quotation two, marks. And then two weeks later, I saw Sinead O'Connor play uh, <laughs> in not a biggest venue, but it was like... It was so heavy. Yeah. It was really heavy. It's right. like when she was at her peak <laughs> and she was very political. And I was like, oh, that's like. Talk about opposite that, ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that was really different. <laughs> and so I felt like, okay, so I knew I loved words and I and, and were writing lyrics and wanted to write songs. And I just felt like I love Van Halen, but that's not me. Like, I'm not yeah. going out there with swords. I'm not like a party guy. And Sinead's show just resonated and it stuck with me a lot longer. You know, it was very profound in terms of the messaging and, and how serious she was. And I connected with that. And then U2 and R.E.M. and those bands, there's a sensibility that was really, I was struck by. Well, the musicality of, of the band obviously sways more towards Van Halen than Sinead. I mean, even yeah. though the attitude doesn't necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you come from a musical family at all? I don't. No, like what I said, my, my dad uh, came over from Italy when he was eight years old. He's in construction and there was not a lot of music growing up. I talk about this. It's it's weird. Like uh, for the first like 15 years of my life, I probably was told I wasn't creative, you know, like, and so yeah. that was part of that transformation for me when I was, when I was able to like take it back and realize that, you know what? Yeah, man, I like, like, why do I like the beat poet so much? Why do I sit up at night till like two in the morning with my flashlight in my bed? reading Ferlignetti or Ginsberg or, or Kerouac. Like, why was that connected with me? I was like, oh, you know what? Because I really, like back in grade three, I loved creative writing, but then it got lost along the way and no one found it and no one tried to like perpetuate it for me or help me connect with it. So I kind of was lucky. I was able to reconnect with it on my own when I was sent off to private school because it was a really dark time. I was by myself. I hated it, wanted to leave. And um, so, yeah, I would fall asleep to you know, anyone from Springsteen to the Stones to, you know, early U2 records. And, and I was just, for whatever reason, somehow reconnected with that creative juice. And I was like, man, I got to do something with these words. I was writing journals like I'm not going to be a poet, so I should sing this. <laughs> What's wrong with being a poet? Right. You know, nothing. I just I didn't have the you know, it's like a comedian. You go up there and recite poetry and you need some need some big balls. Yeah. <laughs> I think you could pull it off, but regardless, uh, you know, the teenage rain made a, a hopefully proud of the man that you've become today, but are you good? Like, is there anything you haven't done that you want to do? Like what's on rain made his bucket list? Uh, I'm going to Japan. 
You haven't been? No, that's no me neither. Good. That's yeah. on my bucket list. Yeah, let's that's, go together. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. I, yeah, I feel you know <laughs> I I got three boys. They're healthy. You know, they're kind of doing what I just talked about. Like we're the critical creative balance. They have that in their lives. You right. know, so I think that's really cool. I think that's a problem right now. You know, when you, you think about politics and where this world's going, it's like we can't lose sight of how like we're all born creative. And I firmly believe that. And then curriculum and everything kind of sucks it out. Most of us. So for this planet to move forward, I think that's the most important thing. And so like with my boys, that's, that's our life, you know, and I, and I love it. And I, and I love being a part of that. And I think it actually inspires me. I think even in the record we make, and even with my solo stuff and this moon for sun stuff that my wife are doing, it's like our kids are witness to that. So it puts a little bit of pressure in a good way on it. It's like whatever legacy we're building and recording, whatever words I'm saying, it's like, it's not just for me anymore. Like I, I got to say shit that my kids are probably gonna get to know me better through the music than they ever would me sitting them down and giving them some lecture on the way to school. Wow. That's interesting. Are you nurturing the creativity in them? I'm sure like, like your wife and, and yourself both come from that world. We do by example. We do not, like they take music lessons and they hang out with musicians, but we don't do that. It's And I, and I think that's healthy because they see it from us. You know, it's like Rowan, my son, was sitting in the studio the other day when Chantal and I were just finishing this last, literally this last song from, from Moon for Sun and came into the studio, just sat on the couch and chilled for like 45 minutes listening. And we never said, we never talked, we never, but I know he was like, he's like a sponge, right? He's a yeah. kid. But then he'll want to go work with like this kid from Mustafa, who's just, you know, he's like the next weekend friend of ours from Toronto. And so I'd much rather him hang out with Mustafa and and be inspired and go down that route because- Find peers, right? It really, yeah, I'd hate pushing any of our stuff on him. Like it's, that's always around him anyway, you know? Do they enjoy it? Like, do they come to shows? Do they come on tour with you at all? Yeah, they did for sure. Like they, they've got up on stage and played with us already and sang <laughs> nice. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, 14, 12 and 10. All right. So they're right in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're, right. they're, they're, yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. But again, like <laughs> I say, it's only, it's all on them. If they want to do it. Cool. I, I want them to have music in their lives just because it's cheaper than Ritalin, you know? <laughs> On that note, congratulations on all your success. Uh, I really love the new album, and I'm glad I finally got to talk to you. Rain Maid, Our Lady Peace from Toronto. This is a Canadian caucus, by the way. I might have to change the name of the podcast. By the way, what, <laughs> what's the name of your podcast? Uh, the Together Space. The Together Space. All right, yeah. check that out after you shut this off. And when is that Moon versus Sun album? Moon versus Sun, everything comes out. I mean, the, the music will probably be beginning of the year. And then um, this film we have, we're doing premieres in, I think, Toronto, New York, LA, and uh, Montreal, probably end of November. Do you think you'll perform live in support of that album? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This Great. is like, yeah, this is a really interesting project. I mean, it really is about collaboration. It's about doing the work and even our shows, like we'll go on stage and sometimes we'll talk more than we play music, which is really weird, but it somehow works. That's part of the show, right? A little it, Yeah, banter. it is. Like we'll have a fight backstage and we'll take it on the stage <laughs> and we'll just fight for 20 minutes. And then it's like, okay, that's enough. Let's play That song. sounds like the sort of live performance that's perfect for the city winery. Right? Right. Just there we go. A yeah. couple glasses of Cabernet on that's stage it. and just go at it. it. Thanks, Rain. I appreciate the time. Man. My pleasure, man. All that's right. cool.
In the water from Our Lady Peace earlier in the podcast, I spun head down. I spun it. Hey, everybody, I'm a radio DJ. I spun it. <laughs> Both songs off Our Lady Peace's fantastic new album, Somethingness. Pick up the album, find out more about the band, OurLadyPeace.com. And uh, incidentally, I stayed for the show after the interview, and it was rocking. There was a dude in the balcony, guy was the spitting image of Phil Collins. Guy was hanging off the balcony going nuts. And 25 years in, I feel like that's all you need, right? Bizarro Phil Collins going bananas while you play your rock and roll. Follow the band on the socials at Our Lady Peace. And don't forget about the podcast. Follow, listen, subscribe, donate, worship. It's on iTunes and iHeartRadio. Search for it or don't. I mean, you're here already. Just come back for the next one. Or you can listen to archived episodes at baldfreak.com and soundcloud.com slash baldfreak. And correspond. Hello, is it me you're looking for? Ron at baldfreak.com. Thanks to Rain Maida for being a gentleman. Devi Ekanand at Coalition Media for setting up the interview. Hope I pronounced that right. Ekanand. This is what happens when you meet people exclusively on the internet. And OLP's tour manager, Josh Thomas, for the hospitality. Next time on the podcast, you think this guy was late. Austin, Texas blues guitarist Black Joe Lewis keeps me in suspense for a full hour backstage at the Black Cat so he can go eat half-price oysters. 